Welcome to the B&E Podcast with Brandon Colby-Cook and Evan Schulte. Exploring the creative process and finding the balance between artistry and industry. Entirely uncut and unscripted. Welcome to the B&E Podcast for episode 99. 99, the Wayne Gretzky of podcasts. If you're Canadian, you should know. I feel like if you're a sports fan of any kind, if you you should know. If you've just recently been born or came from another planet, maybe you want to understand what we're talking about. I don't care. (laughs) You know who the great one is. (laughs) So we're at episode 99, so obviously the next one will be our 100. Um... I don't know if we're going to pull together a, uh, a mass collection of people, but I think in the new, in the new hundred, you know, after 101 and so on, we may have some repeats, bring some people back. Yeah. It's been a whole year, you know, um, it might be neat to, it actually might be neat just to bring people back. Like we had Kat on say seven. So it might be neat to bring her back at 107. You know what no. I mean? That might be kind of a thing we can do where people come back on the same number episode they were in that first season. That could be interesting, you know, and yeah. we can see how they've changed and grown and, you know, and, and we can just expand the talk that we were already yeah. discussing, right? Yeah, that would be great. And so for those of you wondering, when are they going to get on topic? Well, we don't know because this is a not so serious Sunday and we just, uh, we just rant and talk and eventually after about 15, 20, 30, 45, 80 minutes, <laughs> we figure out what we're talking about. So oh, we've had a few where suddenly it's like five minutes in <laughs> yeah, and we know, like we're, we're on to something. Yeah. Yeah. And we've had a few where it's taken us probably 30 or 40 minutes to get there, but it was weird cause we were actually talking about it, but we didn't realize it until we were like, I think what we've been talking about is this. Yeah. That yeah. <laughs> so, um, for those of you who are listening to the podcast for the first time and you're not a part of the live audience, you probably already read the title. And for those, um, who are watching us live, we actually on video here, um, live, live streaming this. So they're finding out with us, which is really neat. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, uh, so Think of the excitement, <laughs> let's, um, so let's, let's talk about what's been going on. We got our film thing. So you just, uh, you just completed a new draft yeah. of the script, yeah. which I'm to read. And, um, we got our, we got our contracts in, in place. That's a little sound from the computer. All good. That shouldn't happen again. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, anyway, so, uh, so we got that going. So the project, um, on the highways moving forward, we got our little Twitter account set up, you know, so social yep. media is beginning. Um, and, uh, yeah. So I don't mm. know, how's the process been for you for like relooking at the script? It was, um, it was better than I thought it was going to be. Like, uh, I think on the last time I, I might've talked about it on the last podcast that we did just in terms of having certain like concerns about revisiting something that I wrote a little, you know, a while ago, um, how I was going to feel about it. Was I, was I going to, because as much as I, I, I'm often like super critical of my own work, it was, it was a script that I was like, no, I, I'm proud of this one. Like I, I feel good about what I, what I did with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's like, oh, in retrospect, I was like, am I going to be able to be objective about this or I'm just going to hate it? I'm yeah. just going to hate everything that I did. And, um, I, I didn't have that process really so much. There was like, there's just like little things that I was getting nitpicky about where I was just like, oh, really? Like, did I, <laughs> did I 
did I do that? Or for some, some of the cases it was, um, it was interesting realizing in, in retrospect that I had allowed it. Like there were certain things that I thought, you know what, when I wrote this, I knew that it wasn't as strong as it could be. Mm. And I, it had sort of, I just sort of left it as it was. Mm. Um, but now I'm just, and I was able to address some of those things in doing this latest revision with it. And also being able to, um, incorporate some new <laughs> ideas. <laughs> you just, We're laughing because for those of you on the podcast, we're only hearing the audio. My, we, my cat is standing literally in front of the live broadcast stream, just kind of sniffing around, yeah. looking at the camera, <laughs> causing a ruckus, doing yeah. what cats do, yeah, <laughs> which is whatever the hell they want. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. There's no telling him. <laughs> now he's just staring at yeah. us. But, uh, yeah, so it was, it was interesting to come back to it and then, uh, thematically and some of the ideas that, uh, were in it being able to amplify some of those a little bit and also to inject, uh, a few more things into it, which were already kind of under the surface, but Mm. now bringing those a little bit more to the surface. And that was kind of fun. Just like, I always love trying to find very subtle ways of communicating something very big, Mm. you know, like not, not hitting something right over the head. Although sometimes I like to do that as well. Sometimes (laughs) I like to just go for it, but for the most part, I like to just kind of like have a lot of like the concepts and ideas just sort of floating, floating in the background. Yeah. And so I was finding some, like, I was having some fun finding places to do that. Cool. Um, but yeah, there's, there's some stuff after this revision. Cause this revision, I thought, okay, well I'm going to, I'm really just going to treat this as if like I'm tweaking, like I'm just giving it some tweaks here and there where I think it, you know, where I could interject some of those, those concepts and ideas that are very sort of pertaining. I feel to, to what was still actually in the story, but like to me now being more consciously aware of some of those messages and, and wanting to just amplify them a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, so I was, I was going, I was approaching it that way. And that's for the most part what I did, but there were, there were parts where I'm like, you know, I might just want to rewrite this whole scene, you know, because I could see what I was, I was trying to do with it. Mm -hmm. Um, but that was almost maybe some, somewhat of what I didn't like about it is that I could see what I was trying to do with it Yeah, to a degree. I right. was just like, and it was just sort of like some of, there were things I thought maybe felt a little bit forced in it. Um, but I know that I'm going to be doing some more, some more rewrites on it. So you can up. maybe see the work or see the agenda. Yeah. 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 Perhaps. I'm not sure. I'm mm-hmm. waiting to, I, I, I'm waiting to get some of your feedback and some of your thoughts because you're the, uh, I mean, you're the, you're the, the script man, yeah. you're the script doctor. I, well, it seems to be, that's what, that's, what's kind of happened this year. I mean, like immediately I've been hired for five, five jobs to script consult on like in the first month of the year, which is pretty, pretty huge. And like, you know, like the other day, I mean, it's, it's nice to hear. I mean, I, I, you know, I've kind of got come to a point now where I don't really, if someone insults me or someone compliments me, I don't, I don't make too much of it, you know, because I look at it as like, I don't want the ego to get in the way there. 
but it was nice to hear. I mean, it is nice to, to have people express that they value you and they definitely have. I mean, they were like, you know, you're our guy now, you know, and that's, that's really cool to kind of have that and have so much faith, yeah. you know, and, um, to be the guy, to be the guy. You know? <laughs> so that's cool. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think like, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the scripts, the scripts that I'm consulting on, you know, not everything like there's, I don't know. It's interesting. Like there's, there's so many things that I can see now after like having done so many scripts and, and whatever, but, um, the timeless process that I use mm-hmm. is like, it's like a godsend. Cause that thing, like it really kind of is because like, I, I came up with the thing, but in some ways I don't even know if like, it's almost like my muse was speaking through me when I, when I kind of put yeah. it together. I was also in a really crazy time in my life. I was, you know, I was going through kind of a depression and I was just kind of questioning everything about life at the time and everything just seems so chaotic and so meaningless and purposeless. And, um, my, my life since I've been, I don't know, I'd say probably 23, I, I decided that I wanted to be one of the greatest storytellers of our time. That's, that's, you know, where I've directed myself. And, and then when Timeless came along, I was like, well, this is the first real thing where I could say, I think I might actually really be on track with that goal, with yeah. that dream as impossible and crazy as it might seem, you know? Um, but I realized that, you know, what, what, where, where it came from, at least for me, from what I can gather is I was questioning everything. Everything seemed chaotic. Nothing made sense. I wasn't sure like if anything I had ever lived or done in my life was like, uh, meant anything. And so I was questioning all this. And then I was thinking about, well, why do we have story? Like, you know, like this story I've told, like, why do we even have any of this shit? Like maybe story's stupid. Like maybe it's no pointless or whatever. And then I started to realize that, um, we like our psychology, we pattern and all that. And then yeah. we can't, we can't not have a story because like even chaos, you can't exist. Like if everything's chaotic all the time, there's no consistency. There's no predictability. There's no planning. There's no anything. You might as well just always, always satiate how you feel yeah. and never build anything for the future. And the problem is, is that if we were to do that, we would all just be, you know, overweight and we would die early and we would, <laughs> no, we would. I mean, we just, we literally yeah. lead ourselves to our own self-destruction. And so, and I was in a place where I was kind of like on the tipping point of like self-destruction or, or self-discovery. And so <laughs> self-discovery was, what's the story I want to tell? Because I ultimately realized if I told a better story, I could live up to a higher version of myself. And so like, you know, I think like what's been interesting for me, at least with, with story is you're writing a script, you're evolving just by telling the story you're evolving, which is really neat. So like, I think where I look at a script, when I look at it is I'm sure I'll see the evolution because I've read many of the other drafts, but, um, it's really just about how do we take it and evolve it? Not, Mm. I don't look at it as like good writing or bad writing anymore. I just look at it as like, I mean, I got one script on my table right now and it's, you know, it's like a very like immature kind of, uh, I would say adolescent kind of script, you know, it just doesn't have a lot of heart. doesn't have a lot of depth. It's, it's very like overdone over whatever, but I don't look at it like that's a problem. I just look at it like the maturity that a script needs to go through and it has some growing up to do Yeah. as opposed to like, is this a good writer or a bad writer? That's irrelevant. Like, like I think what, what we all need is maturity in our storytelling. Mm. So I don't know. I think when I look at it, that's kind of what I'm, 
you know, I'm going to look at probably for how it's matured since I last read it, how I've matured, how you've matured in your own writing, and then maybe see if I can see something that we can take it a little further. And I think that's where my insights will probably come in. Yeah. I think that it's like, you know, when you trust that things are an evolving process and you trust yourself within that process, I mean, it, it just takes so much of, of the pressure off of, of, of what you think something has to be, because there's something very interesting about that in terms of like, you don't really consider it's like, Oh, well it's like good writer or bad writer is irrelevant. Yeah. Right. Like, it's just like, what, what is there actually here? Yeah. You know, it's like, is there the bones of something, something good in here? Right. Is there something that is a story somewhere in there? Like that's kind of, when I think there always is a story, I think it's a matter of going back to it. And I mean, I think the biggest thing that I'm really kind of connecting to more in my life now is I've gone through this whole process is that things ultimately need to be character driven. And that's, and, 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 and if you miss that one step, you're always building on a faulty foundation. Mm. Even if you start with plot and you build plot and then you try to find characters that'll fit into that plot, it still has to be the characters have to justify the plot. If the plot justifies the characters, you're always in trouble. And I think where I went wrong maybe earlier in my writing career was I justified my characters more by plot because it's safer. It's, it's, it's easier to figure out plot points and then have the characters kind of, you know, experience that. Also, I remember my really early work, it was really plot driven because I would have things happen to the characters as opposed to the characters making things happen. Mm. And that was a massive change for me. Um, and so what I'm realizing now is like my writing is evolving. Um, the writers I'm working with are evolving and I'm just seeing projects in a new way. And I think it takes vulnerability. Like I was working with one other writer who from last year and he, um, two of them actually same, same thing. It's like he had a scene. I don't know if you remember with Ted, remember Ted used to get us to do those acting scenes where we wouldn't say anything. We'd have to like find our keys or something like that. Did you ever do that exercise? Um, I don't know if I did. Like I know you I might did, have came in later. did a few different ones. Well, with something um, like that, he would do it basically where you had, you, you would come in and you would be in your apartment or whatever yeah. and you would have to find your keys cause you'd be late for work, but you had to like misplace them in the room, but you knew where they were, but you had to almost act like you had forgotten them, but you mm. had to live real, like you had to try to find how to really live in that moment. Like what would it, what is it really like when you're looking for your keys? And if people were honest and authentic about it, it was fascinating. And when people were putting stuff on, you could kind of see it. Nothing was more telling. Well, this, um, writer has a scene in the opening part of his film and we were talking about how to make it work because the producers loved everything, but this first little opening bit. So we're talking about, and the character is basically silent through it all. And so we're talking about what he would have to do. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I remember you and I, when we were writing the townsfolk, remember when they were crawling out of the bathroom window, trying to escape the house, Mm. we acted that out because, because it sounds so simple. Like how do you, you just climb out of a room, like just climb out of a window in a bathroom, but there's two people, like, how does it go? And until you acted it out, you didn't really know. So I was telling them that story and I was like, I think you just need to act this out. I think you need to walk around, act this out. And then the answers are going to come to you because I don't think it's something you can logic your way through. And 
after we kind of talked about it, it was like, obviously that's what you have to do. Cause this needs to be a character driven scene. And right yeah. now you want to get something done with the plot and the character has to kind of tag along with your plot. But if you drive it with the character, that'll inform what your plot is. It might be different, but at least it will be authentic and true. Yeah. So it's like a different way I've been learning to work in like, I think what it means is sometimes stopping. And even with the burning blues is like, just, you know, for the next rewrite is just sit back, whatever script it is, sit back, you know, take a moment, go, okay, how would this actually happen? And if I yeah. need to act it out, act it out. It doesn't have to be the best acting performance in the, in the world. What it needs to be is a really true feeling. Yeah. It. Yeah. So that's I, what I'm discovering. Yeah. And I, I love it whenever, especially in, in story or, or in film or something, there's something where you can tell like the, the writers and like the actors, like they really explored this whole thing of what would this actually look like, like to try and, because sometimes like the, the scenarios, uh, are just so kind of crazy, like so insane that there's no way that most people would have actually had this kind of experience before. Yeah. And to actually really try and touch upon it, you know, to really try and connect to what the emotion of what that might be. Because I think that's the thing is like, you actually have to try and tap into an emotion of the circumstance, right? Like it can't, you can't logic your way through that. Like I remember when I was doing my Meisner training and we were, we had been working on, uh, emotional preparation, you know, like that was all that we had been doing like intensively for like four days, basically like four days, like for 12 hours, which it was like exhausting just to like be going through that. But it was, it was, it taught me so much. Like I learned so much about what having an effective emotional preparation can do when you walk into a scene Hmm. because when it's, you really have an emotion living inside you. And for some of the things, these were um, intense emotions that I'd never really had an experience of before. And I had to imagine a scenario and really make it as real as I could to really like, what would that look like? How would that happen to get me to this place? And then really try and bring myself, like pull myself through it. Right. And let it do something to me. And it was outrageous. Like the, like my responses were not always what I, you know, what I thought they might be. Hmm. You know, I had a response to one preparation where I've, I've literally like my whole body went into like, uh, like into almost like, what is it like tinnitus or whatever? Like, like my whole, like my, my hands and my arms were just like tingling and I couldn't even stand up, which was, yeah, it was, it was insane. Like I went into like an emotion of, I, I went towards the, um, I went towards a, like a betrayal, right? That was kind of the, the angle I went. I'm like, you know, I've never really had like a, I, you know, I've been, everybody's has probably had moments where they've felt betrayed before, but this was on a level that I'm like, I've never felt a betrayal like this before. Let me imagine <laughs> some scenario that would make me feel that way. Yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> like my body actually just went into this crazy, like visceral, just physical thing that I, I, I never had an experience of before. Mm. And that was kind of wild to Mm. like, just at least have gone through it. But 
you actually have to experience the emotion of it to know what something might look like sometimes, especially when we're dealing with things like story, yeah, you know, and art, like you can't, you can't just surface that shit. I mean, you can, but it comes off that way, right? Like yeah. everything's just treated with this sort of, you know, light gloss or whatever. And you never really, and then you're, you're robbing your audience, I think as well of getting to experience it as for themselves too. Yeah. Because you, the audience can tell they when, can. when yeah. it's just something, you know, it's like the, you know, you take this, like a classic example is you take the scene of like the dying loved one in your arms. Right. And it's a scene we've seen how many times, hundreds, thousands of times before. Yeah. And there's the moments where you just kind of watch it like the scene that you've seen a thousand times before. And then there's the ones that just like punch you in the gut. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Right. And it's just like, well, yeah, because like some people are just like, they're doing like, because they're just doing the thing that they've seen a thousand times before. Right. And then there's the person who's just like, what if they've really thrown themselves emotionally into like making it real for themselves of like holding like a loved one dying in their arms. (laughs) And then suddenly it's just like, Oh, it's just like rips you apart. Yeah. Yeah. Reminds me of that scene in Tropic Thunder. Remember where he's holding them and they're both (laughs) trying to cry. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> they both want the Oscar. Yeah. No, and, his, and, his are, and his hands are blown off. It's <laughs> like drooling everywhere. Um, yeah, no. And I, I think, I think you can feel it, you know, like I think, um, you, you know, the thing is, is you might not know what's happening, but when things are, when things are really happening, you know, you can feel that something's there and you might not even know why that is. Um, because it's like, you know, it's like capturing a real thing. And yeah, I mean, I think, um, I, I think like the, the whole thing about story is like, story is an interesting thing because story helps us to actually understand and amplify meaning in our life, which can be really good. And it can be not so good. Like there's this whole section of timeless, which is basically a course that I teach, you know, for those who don't know, but, um, it's, there's this whole part I have where about the empowering story and the disempowering story. Cause one of the things I realized while I was going through my strife was, um, well, I can tell a story, but just that's not any story is good. You know, like there's an empowering story I can tell and there's a disempowering story I can tell. And then I started to realize about, you know, like if I really wanted to empower myself now, well, I could tell a certain story. And in certain ways I kind of identified that I was disempowering myself. I mean, the whole reason I got there was because I started telling a story that was disempowering. Mm. I mean, there's even a story in what if everything's chaos? What if everything's meaningless? That's a story too. You, you can't avoid it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like you can try and you can be like, I don't believe in any story. I'm like in the, you're not, you know, you're not, everything's a story. There's always a pattern and it doesn't even matter. Like if you try to separate yourself from it, you will always do it because we, we all know that there's a past and a present. And even if we don't know what our future looks like, we all have these things we put together to make sense of all this. And Mm -hmm. it's crazy. We live in this crazy complex time. And, and the thing is, is we also have to remember that story is pretty much a hundred percent subjective. So that means that, that no one has the best story. No one has the right story. No one has 
the story. It's a story. It's an option. And that's what makes stories so amazing because for every single human being there is in the world, there's another story. And like, when we look at like, well, why, why watch this story over that story? You know, there's like this whole part of it, which is like, well, there, there, I think the thing, the confusion is, is that we think what makes a story interesting is what happens, which is the plot. But that isn't what's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's the confusion. What's actually interesting is what's experienced no matter what happens. Yeah. And so like, that's why you could do a scene in like Ted's class or whatever acting teacher we had, you could do a, a, an acting scene in his class and, and you could watch someone be searching for their keys late for work. And that was far more riveting than someone else who's in a scene where they're professing their love or talking about this dead, this person who died or holding this loved one in their arms, because mm-hmm. there's something about being truthful that in that moment, which is what much more captivating and like the story of needing your keys was more real than it was for the person losing their dead one. Now, I think if you put, if you take two things and you put them side by side and you take like losing the dead one and looking for your keys, if they're both equally truthful, the one where you're losing the dead one is more interesting. But if the one where you're losing your dead one is not truthful, but the one where you're looking for your keys is truthful. The one looking for your keys is actually more interesting. And think about how crazy that is that someone looking for their keys is more interesting than watching someone because that's the difference between like, like real visceral and like fake surface, you know? And I think that's, you know, that's the thing. And I think we're, the reason why we choose fake surface. And I mean, I've done it is because it's safer. It's more comfortable. You yeah. don't really have to go there. Like you had an emotional experience. You're talking about betrayal. Your body's like, atrof- like, like going through this thing. Right. I mean, that's not comfortable. Most people don't want to do that. Most yeah. people spend their whole life avoiding that. You know? Yeah. So, you know, it's, yeah. it, it reminds me of, of a Meisner story. It's one of my favorite acting stories, not just like for a Meisner thing, but it was like one of, um, one of his students had like booked this, like role in, in, in a movie or something like that. And he had this scene, um, where he's proposing to his girlfriend and the director wanted him to cry for the scene. He wanted him to be really emotional, uh, for this scene. And so the actor was like, Oh my God, like I've got to cry for the scene. I've got to like, you know, come up with some sort of thing. So he, he went to Meisner you know, his teacher and to be like, Hey, listen, explain the scenario. And it's like, what should I do? And Meisner said to him, when you ask her to marry you, really ask her to marry you. <laughs> just like, <laughs> <laughs> really do it. Just like, really do it. Yeah. Like really like bring yourself to that place, you know, of just putting yourself at the mercy of, of, of this person who you love Hmm. more than anything. Right. And really ask her to spend the rest of her life with you until you die. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Like do it, like really find a way to connect to that. Cause I mean, that's really, you know, this is why I find that like so much of acting teaching is just so, you know, like I say like no technique is necessary or unnecessary necessarily (laughs) (laughs) because it's really, it's really all about connecting to the experience of something and truly connecting to the experience of something. Mm-hmm. So it's, 
Like, uh, there's no right or wrong way really to do that. There's ways that have been found that can help, Mm -hmm. you know, but not always. Yeah. Sometimes they don't help you at all. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they actually get in the way of things. Right. So it's, and which is why it's kind of a mucky process sometimes. And it changes from role to role, from play to play, movie to movie. Like there's just, there's different demands. There's different, like upon you in terms of what you have to establish some kind of a connection with. Mm -hmm. You know, as a, like I've worked with a lot of different acting teachers and, and, um, they all have different types of ways of going about it. One thing I've always found difficult with acting teachers, and I suppose this is why I'm not a writing consultant that does this is when I've been with an acting teacher that's dominated and they've been like, do it my way. And this is the right way. And this is the way. And, and to me, that's just like, I found that there's been people I've worked with and I'm like, like you, you, you're kind of giving me this blanket way of acting. And maybe that's worked with you for a bunch of other actors, but your blanket model doesn't work with me. You know, it's like, like being a writing consultant, probably the biggest discovery I've had through it all is like, I'm always working with a different writer and no writer works the same. Yeah. They all write a script but no writer works the same. They all have a different way of seeing the world, a different process. And they all, they're all like different in in different areas. It's like when you're working with a sports team, you know, you're going to have the guy who's really fast, the guy who's really strong, the guy who's good at defense, the guy who's good at offense, whatever, you know, it doesn't guy, girl, whatever, it doesn't matter, but you're going to have people who have different attributes in certain areas and different weaknesses in certain areas. Yeah. And you know, you, you, you don't need to work with every player the exact same way. There's certain drills that you can run everybody through and it will benefit everybody. But then there's a certain, you know, there's certain things that certain people need, you know? And so like, um, one of the struggles I always had was, um, you know, when someone would put a blanket thing on me, because like, I've always been told, like, at least with acting, like one thing I've been, one thing people really notice about me is when I'm not talking, they can tell I'm thinking like I'm thinking about something and, and like, like as a, as a character, I tend to process, like I'll mm-hmm. be like, and I just do that. Like it's, it's, it's a skill I think I learned pretty early, which is just to really like, like be in those character shoes and process. I was always really good at the thinking side of things. So mm-hmm. when you, when you're watching me, it tends to be that, you know, there's some processing going on, which is interesting with the emotional side, I was very like weak at because, um, you know, when I was younger, like, you know, I was super, super sensitive. Right. But that was kind of beaten out of me a lot. It's like, don't cry, don't be emotional, don't whatever. And so I learned to really suppress my emotions. So for a lot of my early years, um, you know, there, they would always be like technically like just really great. You know, there's a lot of stuff there, but we need more emotional depth. That was like the feedback I kept getting. Yeah. It was really hard for me because I was told my whole life not to feel, and, and or to be in control of your emotions, be in control of them, yeah. which I was totally out of control. Yeah. <laughs> if anything, you know, like, and, and I was actually just watching a mini doc on, uh, uh, river Phoenix last night mm. and they were talking about him and they were talking about why he was so good at acting. Um, when he kind of came on the scene and, and basically through all his careers, like he was so sensitive, like that's what people didn't realize. He was a really, really sensitive guy. And, you know, his parents were kind of a little bit hippie-ish, you know, they mm-hmm. were like, and they really like, um, allowed their, you know, him, at least their children, like you were allowed to feel, you were allowed to express yourself and, 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 and to not just feel, but to express, you know, for me, like, um, 
I didn't necessarily like, I came from kind of an education system, kind of a family a little bit was like, don't, you know, don't, don't be too loud. Don't do all this stuff, you know, so much. So for me, like expression and emotion was a difficult thing. I had to learn that. Like I had to, you know, so when I came across a teacher that could really help me access that, like Ted and, and Matthew Harrison, Ted Whittle and Matthew Harrison, those two guys like really changed a lot of things for me Yeah, because they, you know, and actually June B. Wild, who was one of my first teachers, she helped me a lot too. I mean, everybody had a stage in my progress, you yeah. know what I mean? But I would have, occasionally I would have teachers that I would encounter who were very like, you need to do this thing. And it's like, you don't need to get me to think about more stuff. That's not what you need me to do. <laughs> what you need me to do, like, like if you really want to get the most out of your actor here is what you need me to do is you need me to, um, dig in emotionally. Cause I'm going to think that's going to have, that's like not, that's like an easy skill. It's like, like when I was playing soccer, like, you know, running or something, skating and hockey is, I was fast. That's not a problem. What I needed to work was like maybe body checking or taking a hit, you know, that's a different part of the game. Yeah. But like, you know, if you, you know, if you take a fast skater and you go, well, let's just make them faster. That'll make them better. It's like, it's, it's a lot of diminishing returns at a certain point. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. And that's why I liked your Meisner workshop too, because I found like, oh, this is this, I don't have to worry about thinking. Thinking's going to happen now. Now, like the thinking and the, and the trying things out in that moment are actually like, it's not like, I don't talk about like, I'm not an actor thinking about what I should do as an actor, but like emotionally you're in the moment. You, you know, it doesn't matter what you're thinking anymore, but that emotion like amplifies everything. And it actually informs the thought. It makes it all richer, mm-hmm. but like you can't have an actor like who only thinks or only feels like you, you know, or only take or only physically does stuff. You need someone who can kind of can manage all things and kind of do it seamlessly without it, without showing you they're doing it. You yeah. know what I mean? And so like a writer is the same way. You've got to get them feeling the scene you got to get them out of their head. You know, you got to get them. Sometimes you got to get them thinking. Sometimes they're feeling too much. You know, sometimes it's just about like, you know, it's their, their block is just right. You know, just take action. Like don't, yeah. don't, don't worry about emotionally how it feels or don't think about it too much. Just take action. So, you know, you got to find all those things and then you can get someone to do all three of those things seamlessly without really thinking or feeling or knowing really anything about what they're doing, but it's all happening then I think you've kind of won. Right. And that's where I think it comes down to my whole roundabout talk here is it all comes down to process. It's all your process. Right. And so I think when, when, when acting teachers or writing teachers or consultants or whoever says, do it this way, this is the way they're, they're not looking at you, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just think like, like there's no blanket way. It's, it's, everyone has a process. And, and like, I spent the first hour, like talking to the new writers I'm working on and I'm like, look, they were all worried. Like, cause the producers didn't like where the script was and all this stuff. And they thought we're going to get fired. They're going to fucking never make this movie. So they came in thinking maybe I'd be the enemy. I said, look, I don't know what the right answers are. I have some ideas. I want to know about you guys. I want to know what you think. I want to know what's important about you, you know, and what, you know, how you're feeling. I want to, I want to understand you because once I understand you and I, and, and like, it was amazing watching them because the first few minutes of the whole call was like, you know, guard is up, you know, even some things, the way they said them, you know, like yeah. you can never really know if you trust somebody kind of ideas. And stuff. Yeah. By the end of it, it was like, 
like once it, once I go, it's like, no, like it's not on me. Like I'm here to help you. But I, but as your like guide or mentor or mediator between you and the producers, I'm here to help everybody win. I'm not here to take anybody's side, you know? And at the end of the day, I'm not writing the script for you. You're writing it. So I'm looking at how to help you write it. Not about how, not for you to write it the way I would write it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, (laughs) that's huge. Right. Like that is absolutely huge. Like I know from like, you know, certain acting teachers that I worked with where it was just like, you know, I had, you know, and that's a terrible thing to have enter your mind where you, you question the origin of the feedback that you're getting. Right. It's like, are you saying this because there's actually something wrong with this? Or are you saying this because this is how you would do it? Yeah. Or are you saying this because someone else, like one of your teachers told you that this is how you do it? Like, what's the reason for this? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think also like one of the big things I've learned over the last few years too, is the answer is, well, there's that saying, I'm sure you've heard it. All the answers are within you. Mm -hmm. Well, when you're trying to get someone to get the answers, if you really believe that all the answers are within you, which I believe they are, then you don't give them the answers. They find the answers. So our old model of education was, oh, here's the answer. Like, here's the answer. Memorize it. Now I'm going to ask you some questions to see if you memorize the answer I gave you. But new model of education is, um, neither of us know what the answer is for you. So let's ask a series of questions and eventually we'll uncover it and discover it. But you'll tell me, I don't even know your answer, right? Like, and that's the beauty of, of, I think artistry, I think that's what, why we, we need artistry more than ever in society right now, because artistry is people find answers within them as opposed to looking for answers outside of themselves. Industry is here's all the answers that we should memorize. Artistry is we don't know what the answers are. Let's put you into a scenario and we'll find out what they are. Yeah. Right. It's a little scarier, but it's way more enriching. Yeah. Because it, it takes you to a place. And I think that a, a big word for this conversation that, that we're having, whatever this conversation is that we're having yeah, for me, at least is about this word experience, mm. like the experience being a teacher, um, not just through doing it and putting yourself out there, but really experiencing your, your own process. Yeah. And experiencing, um, the lessons that you're learning as well, because that's more like, yeah, it's, it's way more valuable than somebody just telling you the answer. Mm. Right. Which again, that is so often, especially in arts, it's subjective at best, you know, so much of, of what you're being, being told. Well, I can understand why people would would choose to tell people the answer and choose that industrial model because it's really efficient. Like, I mean, I could have got on that call and said, okay, look, this is what's wrong with your script. Here's what you do. I could have done that. Yeah. I mean, and it would have been all my opinion and, and, and whatever. And maybe it had some validity and, you know, maybe you could say, well, I've seen enough scripts now where I know, but the thing is, is that, you know, it's like, I'm going to have to tell them they're going to miss a bunch of the stuff I said, cause they can only take in so much of the information. Yeah. Then they're going to mess that up. Then I'm going to have to work them again. Then I'm going to tell them what to do again. And then again, and then again, and again, and again, and it's like redundant. And, it's and like, then they feel, then, then they start feeling jaded and like, they feel like they're really not part of the process anymore. They're just like they're not a part of the doing process. what somebody else it's wants them pro- to it do. It would be my process. Yeah. And they would be, they would be basically doing what I, dictate them to do. Yeah. And at that point you might as well just do it yourself. 
And then how much <laughs> self exactly, and how much self esteem are they going to have over their script? And that's yeah. why a lot of you know you'll see these writers where it's like some writer will come on and then they'll write fifty percent more of that other person's script and take the credit. And it's like, well, you know, you basically came on and and rewrote it and like did it your way, mm-hmm. you know. And like, um, I think when people are trying to take credit for stuff, they run into limitation. I think when you look at it and you don't try to take credit for stuff and trust that you'll get all the credit you need ultimately. I mean, that's how I looked at the other writer, you know, and like, you know, look what's happened. I, you know, look how my work, like, you know, just multiplied massively. And, you know, after that, Mm -hmm. it's not, I'm not trying to take credit for it. You know, I'm just looking at, it's like, let's just make something great. Right. But the thing is, it's like, maybe I don't get credit. Maybe that happens. But at the end of the day, I'll be proud that I know that I guided a project to the right place. And here's the beautiful thing about working with process is yes, it's not as efficient. I, I understand that. But I learn and grow as a writer as I work with the writer. Yeah. But if I do it with the other way, the script doctor, I'm going to dictate and tell you, I don't learn anything. Mm-hmm. And that, and the problem is, is then it becomes work because now I'm spending hours of my time dictating yeah. and not learning anything. But when we do it inductively through that writer's process, I actually get the luxury to learn through that writer. Right. And people go, well, how can you learn through someone who's like not very experienced? It's like, you can learn so much. You can learn so much. Like you learn more than it from a child than an adult sometimes, because a child can, can show you their process, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas adults just kind of memorize shit, you know, in our current day and age, and they just regurgitate shit that everyone already kind of has heard, but nobody's connected to. Like, let me just give you an example. Yeah. The first week of timeless, I ask a series of questions. The first four questions are basically this. What's an idea? What's a concept? What story? And there's one other question, but I'll just leave it at those yeah. for the time being. What's an idea? What's a concept? What story? And when I ask those questions, everybody like looks at that and they go, well, I know what an idea is. You d- and you should see what happens when you start answering. Well, what is an, I- well, an idea? Is- and when she started actually trying to ver- verb, you know, say it out loud and actually like verbalize this, uh, this thing, you go, wait, maybe I don't know it. And then you start making it more complex. You add in a concept and then people think they know what a concept they don't. And then it gets the story. They don't even know what a story is. And I'm like, do you see how we're beginning from a place where you don't even know what a story is and you're trying to write one. And they're like, Whoa, (laughs) it's like, okay, now that that's out of the way. And uh, like, like I could give people those questions. They can try it on. Like, go ahead, try, ask yourself those questions. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of a process I run you through, but it will already help. If our audience already starts asking themselves those questions, you'll be monumentally better off. But I take some yeah. foundational questions to get more complex as you go. But what we find is that people just have all these things. They, they don't know what they are because they've never found them within. Like they memorize story from some textbook that some teacher told them when they were like one or like, like grade one or something like this is what a story is. Mm -hmm. And they don't know what it is. That's what they were told a story was. But to them, the subjective experience of a story and how they interpret story is totally different. And so, you you know, what's really neat for me is to be on the other end and find people, um, try to work through that and try to figure out, Oh, what is story for them? Which, you know, it, like you don't have, you don't have to be a rocket science scientists understand that by me building a really strong foundation off of the person's own belief system through like basically a bounce back of me being a mediator and kind of testing their accuracy on the idea that when they actually find it 
themselves that their story is going to be stronger. Cause like, how is someone supposed to write a story and they don't even know what a story really is? Mm-hmm. It's they're right. They, immediately when you write the story, your story is already tainted by the idea that you're writing from something that someone told you what it was. If that makes sense. Right. So, you know, so we go through, we go back through process and it's so simplistic in the beginning, but it's really great. And like the beautiful thing is every time we do it, I get another subjective experience of story and I grow as a storyist myself. Mm-hmm. And like it's, and, and what's really neat is when you do it in a group exercise is like in my first class I ever ran, I ran it in groups of like four or five people and everybody, or actually I think I even did it with eight people yeah. and everyone had to answer what a story was and everybody got to hear everyone else kind of try to chirp in and together as a group, as a team, we all kind of came up with story from a really subjective discovery point of view. And it was really fun. And, um, you know, and everybody really like flourishes. Right. And so it's, it's a neat process to go the other way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think like if we did all education that way, you know, I mean, well, there's certain education where it's not necessary. Like, I mean, for example, if we need a job done really quickly, we might just say, okay, do this, this, and this, and let's get that done and move on, you know, because it needs to get done right now. And there's no time for us to discover it. Yeah. But for us, if we really want to educate really like, um, you know, really great, like people in our, in our world, we want to educate people that own their own ideas. Yeah. You know, I think it's on like, it's, if we want to teach people on a deeper level, you know, like if you really want somebody to have, and see, and I'll come back to it. It's like to experience the lesson, to experience what is being taught as opposed to just being told it, you know, you experience it. Yeah. And it is, it is way more profound. I think that was another thing that I loved about, um, doing the Meissner work and with Larry Silverberg as a teacher, like it was, it was so unique as a, it's so unique as a method of training simply because it's, it's actually coming in, like you're actually learning it in action. Right. Like you're actually having discoveries and you're learning it through the process of doing it. And, and a huge part of that was, is experience. It's like, what, it's like, how do I know the things that I know about acting? Like how, how am I like, there's, there's things I learned about that, that just like, I, I can't even teach you. Even if I told you, yeah. like you wouldn't, you wouldn't have learned it like, unless you've actually like gone through and had the experience for yourself. Because, you know, for me to, to say, cause for me as, as a, as a teacher, what I try and bring, you know, and I think what I, I like to try and do just with this podcast as well, but through actors more specifically is to engage artists with this creative space and to have an experience of this thing happening to them as opposed to them doing it. Mm. Right. And, and that it's a somewhat mysterious process and to learn to embrace that process and learn to embrace being in that space, learning to be in that mysterious fluid. (laughs) Right. Right. That is creativity. Yeah. And, and that that's like the most exciting place to work from. And how can I just, teach you that. Like, I, I can tell it to you as a concept. It's like, yeah, it's this thing because that's, that's part of the problem. It's just like, yeah, it's this 
thing. And it's like, we're trying to work with somebody in their own process as well. You know, it's like, okay, well, this is going to take some time. This is going to take your participation in your own learning. Hmm. Right. And you're going to have to get your hands a little bit dirty. You're going to have to go in yourself, right? Like I can sort of point a direction, but you have to actually walk it. And then going that direction, then maybe you'll have this experience that I had and you'll go, Oh, holy shit. This is what it's all about. And you go, yeah. So now you know what, where you have to go Mm -hmm. from here on, right? In your work, you have to go to this place. This is where it happens. But I couldn't tell you to just go there yeah, because I can't make you do it. There's like, it's not even fucking possible for me to do it. Yeah. You, it just has to be an unfolding process and you have to trust me and do the work. And eventually you'll just kind of like stumble upon it and you'll go, Oh, <laughs> cause I know that's what happened to me. <laughs> yeah. I just like, Holy shit. Is well, this what it's all about? Yeah. This is amazing. Totally. I, you know, I think, um, I think it's one thing it's, it's good to learn things inductively as much as possible, but I think the value of having mentors and guides is that they keep you on course because mm-hmm. inductive learning can easily go like, you know, you can just get too lost. Right. And so like, well, yeah, then it just becomes like a, like a giant, you know, like, um, free play period. Yeah. Right. And there's no sort of like, there's no goal. There's no purpose. I think that's the idea. Maybe as a teacher is you give some sort of a purpose to it. Right. Some sort of like a, some sort of like a light (laughs) to move towards and then help assist that individual, which is going to, it's going to be an individual journey, Yeah. right? It's going to be their own. And then the the student sitting next to them, it's going to be theirs too. Theirs is going to be different. Right. Yeah. You know, with, uh, when I was playing soccer, um, pretty high levels and stuff, we used to, we used to do a bunch of drills. We'd have a bunch of things we'd have to do in the beginning of practices, right? And then at the end of it, we'd usually get to scrimmage a bit, but the scrimmage was kind of the free play period, but the free play period was good because you actually got to apply the drills you had been practicing, right? You, you know, you get to see them in action Mm -hmm. and there's a dynamic element to actually playing a scrimmage match that you don't get in say like a drill where there's still like in certain drills. I mean, in like say a running drill, you got to run to a line and back. That's like almost there's no free play in that. It's, mm-hmm. it's really just run back and forth. Right. And it's fitness, but there's other ones where it's like a, a four cone drill where there's three players who have possession of the ball and one player who has to chase it. But all the players who are passing the ball have to run to one of the four cor- corners. You can't pass, um, like, or you have to be on a corner to pass the ball. You can't just right. be like in between. Right. And so what it does is the idea of the drill is to always get you open for a pass. So if, I pass the ball to the guy to my left. Then he has me who I just, who just passed it to him or the guy who's on his right. But the guy on his right would have been on my right originally. So he would have had to run to the other cone. You see what I'm saying? Okay. So then what would happen if that guy passed back to me, the guy who just passed to the other guy would have to run back to the cone. So this guy could be running back and forth if we just keep passing the ball back and forth. Right. But eventually the guy who's the defender will eventually challenge you if you do something too often, but then you'll right. pass the other guy and then one of us will have to run to the other corner and it can go, you know, and this is how it works. Right. But what it does is it creates a triangle effect of always seeing the triangle in the game mm. of being open for a pass option for the guy. 
And, you know, to be a high caliber team, you, you know, you need to get open for passes. It's almost more important what people are doing who don't have the ball than people who do have the ball. But that's a really great lesson for actors. You know, I, I see actors all the time. They're always worried about their lines. It's like when you have the line, what's actually more important is what your scene partners are doing right now, because your line is like, you're just trying to figure out who, who to deliver it to, who's open for the line. Right? Yeah. And so the, you know, the person who's listening, the person who's receiving, or the, even the person who's not even receiving the line directly, but who's watching from the distance, but is, is there, those people are the, really the most important. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like it was like, I, like, again, I remember within my, my training and, and learning lines, like I've never learned ever in my life. Like just like knowing my lines so freaking well. Yeah. Because I learned that it's like, yeah, it's like, once you get that shit out of the way, <laughs> that shit, once you get, <laughs> once you get that out of the way, it's like where there's, it doesn't matter what happens. Like those, those lines are in your veins. Like you don't need to think about them at all. Mm-hmm. Like they're just, they're just there. You can just rattle them off. And then now you're completely like free and paying attention and you can, you can take the pass, right? Mm-hmm. You can receive it and you can, pay attention to everything that's going on in the field, right. if you will, yeah. <laughs> to, to put it that way. But it was just like, you know, and I've learned, been learning lines for like a, over a decade, you know, and, and always seemed to do pretty well, but like this was like a, on a whole new scale and I understood the reason behind it all. It's like, oh yeah, because, and especially within that class, I was like, anything could happen. Yeah like, like anything could happen here. I have absolutely no idea what might go on, especially since like we had multiple people doing the same scenes. And at the last minute, the teacher might just decide to switch your scene partner, like right as you step on, you're stepping on with your scene partner. And then he was just like, uh, actually, you know, you just swap one of you out. And so now you're doing the scene with somebody that you've never rehearsed with but you know that they know their lines <laughs> and you know yours and you have an idea and you both have an understanding of this scene. And then man, shit got wild. Right. Right. But if you, if you don't have, if you didn't have those lines, if you didn't have them just like, yeah. So like you, you would have missed things, right. Just trying to like, Oh shit, you did that. And I had no idea that you were going to do that. And now I'm rattled. And I, and the first thing that goes is your lines. Yeah. First thing that goes is your lines when something kind of rattling happens. Totally. And said this way, you were just like, you're ready to just roll with it to just use it. Well, that's, there's an interesting thing about that too, is like, um, when you're just ready to roll, like when you're just ready to go and it doesn't really matter what the world throws you. Like I, when I think like, I think the thing, one of the things that I respect the most about Marlon Brando as a, as an actor was that he was kind of known for always being kind of ready to roll like ready to go. It didn't really matter what you threw at him. And, and it got to the point where, I mean, you know, some people really didn't like his process, but like, even on the Godfather, like he didn't even have his lines memorized, but he was, the thing is, is like, it's all like, I've read an art, I've read some articles and stuff about all that stuff. And it was like, it's something almost only Marlon Brando could do mm-hmm. because he had earned himself to the point where 
he didn't even have to have the lines memorized. He could read them off of a card and yet win an Oscar performance. Like he's just like, like, it's like when you get to the point where the, the, the point of like being is so authentic, it almost doesn't even matter. Like, like, and the thing is, is yeah, like I do agree. I don't, I think you should memorize your lines and know them. Like I think you yeah. should. <laughs> like, I'm totally hundred percent for yeah. that. But it's quite fascinating that someone, I think what he, he kind of, even in his destructive nature, cause he was pretty destructive in mm-hmm. his later years, self-destructive, I should say. Yeah. He wasn't really so much destructive of others as much, but destruct, self-destructive, even in his self-destructive personal stage, he had basically got himself to that point where he was, even when he was totally fucking up in life, he was still, he still had a craft. He had something about just being in the moment, being present and not putting anything on it yeah. other than trusting that it will t- entirely inform me. And right. like, um, you know, and I think about, I think about that. I mean, I, I always think back to when they wrote about, we've talked about this a number of times where he did streetcar named desire 200 times on stage. Yeah. I mean, and and the thing is, is he did that. And, and that's probably where he earned a lot of his stripes. Cause he did this performance 200 times over. And, and every time he, he trusted whatever he was bringing mm-hmm. and he learned that seeming seems to be, he learned that pretty early. Yeah. And so then from there, you know, and plus with his training and whatever, um, and, and then he built kind of a career on that. Now, all of us as actors, we kind of model that, but I think we can, you know, we can always go back to people who have done this and go, well, what did they do? Like, there's this kind of, like, you'll hear this talk every now and then about like, say even James Dean or Marlon Brando, but Mm -hmm. you say, oh, they were naturals. They weren't naturals as much as they were really, really in a process of trusting what they were doing. Even River Phoenix, I was watching his, his one. River Phoenix, like a lot of people don't know this, his parents were part of a cult. Like I actually read about this way before I ever watched the documentary. That's why I was so interested Mm -hmm. in it. But his parents were basically a part of a cult and that cult was kind of this Christian cult and everything was relatively pretty good in the beginning. But then what ended up happening is this weird sexual thing around children and parents and stuff. And it got really weird. And the parents were like, but they went off to like, uh, some third world country somewhere. I don't know. Maybe it was, I don't know where it was. Maybe it was Brazil. I want to say, I don't know, but they were there and they were like, this is bad. We're out of here. And, but they didn't have money to get back. So they had to survive. And so, uh, river Phoenix being like one of the oldest, um, or maybe he was the oldest, he went off and he would play guitar and he'd play guitar and he'd entertain people. And he learned to be very much like, so he was at a very young age already learning like a lot of things about just like being there and, and, and mm-hmm. connecting to the audience. And, and, and he, he apparently like, wasn't really making it so much about him. So by the time, I mean, he may, I don't know where he was, but by the time they get to LA and he started an acting career, he had already had kind of a life experience that most young people don't have. Yeah. So people call him a natural, but it's like, he's not so much a natural as that like, like his life gave him a certain kind of opportunity, you know, and obviously yeah. like there was a, he, you know, he, he, he ended up having a drug overdose and it was interesting. They explained why that was, I, maybe I'll go into it quickly. Just yeah, so yeah, know. Yeah, Cause River Phoenix is maybe someone that our younger audience doesn't know about, but he was like the modern day James Dean essentially. And, um, he, uh, he basically did what was called a speedball, which is basically, um, uh, you snort cocaine and heroin in the same hit. 
and his really strong yeah. cocaine is really strong heroin. And what happened was he, um, he had a bit of a drug problem near his later part of his life, but he would basically abuse it a little bit and he wouldn't inject apparently, but he just snorted and whatever. Yeah. But apparently he would abuse it. And then his family would be like, you need to get off. And so he would stop and then he would use it again a little bit and then he would stop. But the problem was is for him, he was building up a tolerance when he would use it. And so mm. where he picked back up was he would start at the tolerance he left off at. But they were saying that if you're doing like heavy drugs like that, if you're using it all the time, your body kind of has a, it has a way of dealing with it. But if you stop and then you start again, your body, it's like your body's like, it's like a hit that's way more than your body can take. And mm. so what happened was he started at the same tolerance he left off when he did it again. And that's basically what killed him because what happened was heroin slows your heart and cocaine speeds your heart up and his body couldn't understand. His brain couldn't understand what to do. Mm. Basically put him into a seizure, which essentially killed him. And so, um, you know, and if you, if you start to find out the story about how that actually all happened, he was working on set. There was this really kind of sensitive situation for him. And then he was mostly, he was coming off that set and he was in a pretty good, you know, pretty good state with all his friends and family. And then he was going to play, um, on stage at the Viper room, which is where he died, died outside of the Viper room. Mm. He was going to be playing with, um, his best friend and it was supposed to, you know, whatever. And he was actually an actor who was trying to start a music career. I know I'm going off a little bit, but I think that it's, he's an interesting, he's an interesting story because I think if you understand him a little bit, you know, as an actor, it's not so intimidating because you can maybe understand a little bit about what was going on for him. But he, he actually loved, uh, apparently loved music more than he loved acting. And then they had too many musicians that night at the Viper room it was a relatively new club. Johnny Depp, yes, yeah. had started. And so they said, you can't go up tonight. And he was super disappointed. So that's why he did the speedball and that speedball, he hadn't done drugs in months and that's what did him in. Mm. But, um, the thing about, uh, river Phoenix was like, a lot of people will go like, Oh, like he's, you know, he had a quality about him. Don't, I'm not going to undermine anything about that. And there was, he had, he was a good looking kid and, and you know, whatever. But I think the other thing too, is that, um, he had, uh, certain practices in place. He had a certain, he had a good support team in a certain way. Like he had his family, um, as, as crazy as you can say, like they were to like, they, everybody makes mistakes, but they made their mistakes. But the thing is, is he got the opportunity to learn at a very young age to do things that, I mean, I know that I wasn't learning certain things that he was learning when I was mm-hmm. that age. And so, you know, you look at this young kid and they seem almost so far advanced. And he was in a way because most kids, um, you know, most of us were pretty, we're pretty sheltered. We're pretty comforted. Right. And I'm not saying it's better, but the thing is, I think sometimes as actors get in, they go, I'm not a natural. I'm not like, you know, it's not really about that. I think with, with River Phoenix, if you start to do some research on him, you start to see that he was a guy who was really willing to be really sensitive and be really real in the moment and kind of roll. Like he was really ready to roll. Yeah. And, and he didn't, he was dynamic in the sense that he would deal with whatever he was dealing with. Yeah. You know, and that's really like, I mean, if I was to say to any actors on the other end of this, if you could just get to the point where you were like not trying to control anything, you were just totally like everything that happens is okay. If I cry, don't cry. Whatever happens, it's all 
so perfect. If you just allowed that, you might actually discover that you're actually pretty natural too. Mm -hmm. But I think where we run into problems, and I'm sure you'll agree, is we go, I'm supposed to cry or I'm supposed to do this thing. And then we put an expectation and it totally fucks us up. Or it was supposed to go this way or this character who I'm talking to is supposed to do this thing. And it's like, no one was supposed to do anything. Yeah. (laughs) And the thing is like, and yeah, it's, it is, it comes down to like all these ideas that we have of what things are supposed to be and what things are supposed to look like you know, like guaranteed, like you, you look at any great film or great, sorry, great performance, let's say keeping on the acting frontier, but any great, great performance is, and like, you know, if you have this, it's like, Oh, there was this moment, you know, there was this moment and it was unreal. Hmm. And so we try and so it becomes about this, this one thing, in the performance, you know, and like, maybe, yeah, like maybe that was just sort of like where it had its sort of crescendo or where it had like, um, you know, what they did with this, with this part and this character really hits its most poignant part perhaps, but was that isn't a contrived thing. Almost certainly in my mind, that was not a contrived thing by the actor in their performance they were, they were in it for the whole thing. And they were, and they were so present. They were so involved. They were so in the experience of living through what was going on that led to that moment. But it was only through them having a real authentic experience of it that that moment happened. It wasn't that they're like, yes, I'm going to have this moment. Yeah. But then that's what we kind of try to do as like, you know, when we're actors, training and like Mm -hmm. coming up trying, because like, we just think of these little parts, right? These little components of it. It's, it's interesting. I'm reading, um, an Alan Watts book right now. Uh, and he has this thing about the, uh, he's talking particularly about the Western world. He says, but the Western world has this philosophy that's kind of like only eating the ends off of the banana. You know, it's like, you just want to get to the, to the point, right? Like you eat what you start at one end, you <laughs> just eat that and you there, and then you just, and then you, you wonder why you're feeling hungry right? at the end of it all. Right. <laughs> just skipped out like <laughs> the whole part of it, right? Yeah. Like the whole nourishing part of it, you completely neglected. Right. And I think that oftentimes with like our, the way that we approach art and not specifically through acting. I mean, we are using this kind of right now for our conversation because that's what we know. Yeah. But, um, but I think that this is something that's through a lot of art, you know, it's like, and we talk a lot about this as like, you know, as if it's this thing to get to, you know, it's like to get to this moment, to get to this particular place. And you think that you have to get that very thing and you got your eye so like, and, and you're reaching out for it and you're, you're holding on to it so tightly that you can kind of never have it hmm. because you, you, you haven't done what's necessary to have it. Mm. You haven't necessarily earned it. Yeah. Hmm. And I think that that's, you know, it's interesting with like river with river Phoenix. I, I don't know a lot about his life. I, I knew, you know, as much as probably most people who know anything about river Phoenix about, you know, the tragedy of, of his death. But, um, you know, it was probably something about in his life and through his experience of life that, he, yeah, he had learned a particular kind of sensitivity and a particular kind of trust 
that is one of the most extraordinary things that an actor can ever truly learn Mm. to do that will be massive in terms of performance. Because like I said, no technique is, is neither necessary or, or unnecessary. Right. Right. There's bigger things at play within, within the craft and within the medium and what it is that an actor actually does. There's way bigger things at play just in our humanity. Uh, that if you actually learn how to take that into like in front of a camera or on a stage and you bring and you actually can carry that with you, you'll be amazing. Yeah. You know, and, and you can do that with probably very little training. The thing is, is that there, some of the skills that are required, some of those things that are kind of required to be a great actor, I think that you have to truly learn like from a wisdom level you know, like on a really deep, deep level, if you know it. Um, did I just lose this one? <laughs> did you? Yeah. Um, but no, it's like, if you can, yeah, if you can learn those things and you can learn how to translate it, I'm just going to walk myself back through this one. <laughs> this is, this is, oh, this is so shitty. No, because- it's okay. <laughs> get, we're talking kind of about the experience of it and the actor wisdom that you only get with time. Yeah. Um, but if you, yeah, if you can learn that, oh, this is just so, so well, just think about it for a moment. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's like, you know, I think, um, the, you know, if we trusted, if we valued experience more than results, we would probably solve a lot of our problems. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that like, I think we're just so caught up in a world where we're constantly taught that we, we need to have results. And so we're constantly pursuing results. And the thing is, is like, there's a whole process to why results are the way they are. It's like, yeah. um, you know, like I remember one time I came out of a hockey game and there was this one player on my team and I remember walking out of the locker room. We were young. I mean, we were like, I want to say we were like 10 or 11 years old. And I remember his mom just grabbing him and being like, why didn't you score? You mind you score? And just like, I, I couldn't Whoa. believe it. And I was just like, it's just like child abuse. Yeah. Right. And he was like, I know, I'm sorry, mom, I'm sorry. And just like, and I was just like, all she cared about was why her son didn't get a goal. And I was just thinking like, like, first of all, I was like, fuck, I'm glad that's not my mom. <laughs> I was probably honestly, <laughs> well, the first let's address the first part of this. <laughs> Holy shit. Um, but I was just like, whoa. And I mean, the thing is, is like, you take that kid and it's like, well, you know, if you were really helping him to score. And it wasn't all about your ego and what your son was supposed to do. You'd look at like, well, what went wrong? You know, I remember my, my, my dad wasn't always super supportive of all my sports, but you know, I remember him being like, well, okay. It's like, you're not breathing. You need to be breathing out there on the field. He's like, you know, he's like, and he would help me like work on my breaths. You know, yeah. I started out as like one of the worst players on the team. I was probably playing way ahead of my level, but I, I was fortunate enough to kind of make those teams and kind of, you know, and then they have great training. So you you Mm -hmm. kind of just grow. And plus you're playing around the best players. Like we were literally the best team in the league. So for me, you can only, there's only upward to go. But, um, you know, I, I became like a top level scorer eventually. Um, but for me, it was like, um, it was, you know, it was process. And like, I think the thing that I learned were, what would help me improve. And I wouldn't say that I had the best coaching and mentoring personally around those areas. But if you just beat someone up for not getting a result, 
they just put more and more pressure on themselves, which definitely happened to me as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, I found that the best thing I ever got was when someone helped me with process when they were like, okay, well, you know, I remember I had a, a coach who said, you know, when you're marking, when you're marking a guy, he just gave me some advice on like how to think about, you know, um, you know, maybe he's like, you get, like maybe what you'll do is, you know, like charge the guy a little and back off, charge the guy a little back off, keep him, you know, don't, don't let him be so comfortable. And it's like, um, you know, try some, give me some things to try. And so then you go out in the field and you try these things and you start to kind of get an experience of them. It's like, you know, it's not necessarily saying like, so that you can like, you, you want to check the guy, you want to stop the guy, but like giving you ways in different options to deal with something like, um, maybe that kid only had really one way of scoring, you know, he only had like, kind of like, you know, you know, I've seen players who are really had a great slap shot. They were really, if they got a shot lined up, they'd probably score other players who they couldn't really shoot that well from a distance, but if they got on a break, they were really good. It really, you know, everybody had different skill sets. Right. And I think that, um, you know, I don't think that we should beat ourselves up for not having a skill set at something. We just simply have to look at like, okay, well, what's like, maybe I don't have like the process down with this. Maybe yeah. like the way I'm doing it is not working, mm-hmm. not what I'm doing or the results I'm getting. I think results are just telling of, um, they're just telling of the data. You know, they're not really like, they're telling they're data. of other things done yeah. Done they're well. symptoms. They're just yeah. symptoms. Yeah. They're not causes. Right. So you can't like tell someone like, you know, you can tell someone and just leave them on their own. It's like, do better. It's like, well, that's one way to do it. But if you really want to be a mentor or a coach or like a real team, like person to that person, you need to be like, okay, well let's look at like what you might've been doing. Like what went wrong? You know, like what went wrong along the way as opposed to beating yourself up and like making it like an attack on yourself and saying, I'm not good enough and all that other crap. It's like, what did I, what error did I make? What was I not thinking about? What was I not seeing? You know? Um, and like, or if it's, if you just didn't get the result you wanted is like, where am I not practicing? What am I not putting effort? Like maybe I didn't have the skill to actually achieve it when the moment came, you know, like, um, for example, like we used to work a lot on in sports. I mean, I'll, I'll refer back to this a bit, but we used to work on fitness all the time. That was a huge part of our team. But when it came down to the end of the game, we were still running our hearts out. Other yeah. teams would die and we would win. And the thing is, is that that was just smart coaching because they knew that when the time came, when we needed to be fit, we would be. Yeah. Now you can't make up for that in a game. That's something that's practiced many, many times before you ever get to that game. Yeah. And you might never have that experience. And I think there's a part of, uh, probably just as much with acting where, you know, you can be practicing something and you might never run into that problem, but you could be off on your own practicing it. You know, like you could be just cause you don't have lines to memorize cause you're not auditioning all the time. Doesn't mean you shouldn't be memorizing lines for auditions yeah. all the time. Because if you really want it to be sharp, if you really want all these auditions, you should already be behaving as though you're already there, mm-hmm. you know? And so there's a certain discipline that if we really want it, we can kind of connect back to that. Right. Yeah. And, and there's other things where it doesn't matter how much you practice. It's only going to matter in the moment. Like for example, being in an actual acting scene, you can practice acting all you want, but if you're not willing to be authentic in that moment you're in, all your practice doesn't really matter in some ways. Right. Yeah. So there's kind of a, you know, and it's like that with everything. It's like that with sports. It's like that with, with acting. It's like that with life. 
you know, you got there's certain things that you need to be practicing and have discipline with. And there's certain things that you have to let go to the moment and kind of trust in the moment. And that's, there's nothing is going to save you. No amount of like, I've worked so hard. I've paid for so many acting classes. It's like, yeah, no one cares. Cause in that moment, it's a moment of truth. Yeah. So whatever you've done before that, if you're not willing to let go, if you're bringing all the work of all the classes and all the other shit that you've done into that moment, it's not going to work. Yeah. That's why I think sometimes you have these actors who show up who have like no training whatsoever. And they just like knock it out of the park because they don't have anything to work with. So they're just in the moment because they mm-hmm. don't have anything else to bring to it. You know, yeah. it's just other than B, <laughs> which is sometimes I think a good thing. Sometimes it's like, it can be absolutely <laughs> profound. Yeah. Especially yeah. if, if someone has, yeah, sort of a, a sensitivity and, and, you know, emotional vulnerability to them. Yeah. You know, it can definitely open doors. Okay. I want to yeah. mention the beer, by the way. Yes, do it. This is, you liking it? I, I like it. It's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty strong one. It is strong. Um, and I'm going to say that this is almost, this is maybe a full IPA. Oh yeah, it is. Okay. And All it's right. 8.9%. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. So there's why, there's where I, my, my thought went. Yeah. It went with the 8.9%. Yeah. That is funny. I was at, it's from main street brewery. And he's like, I was kind of crossed between this beer and another one. He's like, it just depends on how you want to feel. <laughs> <laughs> that was his line. So you know, like, <laughs> that's that's almost so perfect for this yeah. conversation yeah. that we're having. <laughs> I just thought that was such a funny way to like tell me, like kind of give me a give me a because I was like so cross between the two. Um, but um, what do you think of it before I mention what beer it is? I I like it. Like it's a sip beer. Yeah. Like it's it's very enjoyable for sipping. Yeah super tasty. Obviously it's stronger. So yeah, you got to sip it a little more. Yeah. Um, unless you're just ready to rock and roll. Um, but I find it super tasty. I was really, really impressed with the taste of it. And no, it's pretty nicely rounded for, for an IPA. Like definitely like you get that hop. Yeah. Hit, I've come but... a long way cause I didn't even like IPAs when we started this podcast and yeah. now like I'm, I'm getting like a really intense IPA and I'm like loving it. So there's been a lot of growth here, Yeah, <laughs> but it's called a, um, the hyper Fox. Oh, okay. You know, they have the naked, the naked Fox, Fox IPA. But this one's the hyper Fox. Right. Yeah. So it's uh is it a double, I would imagine it's, it's gotta be a double IPA. I, I think then. it's a double IPA. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause like usually normal IPAs, like they're a little higher, like they're around six, six and a half percent. Maybe it's the double IPAs that creep up into that eight, eight point nine. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> So yeah, um, they had, a, they also had, uh, Mike, just in case you were curious, the other option was the Dunkel they had, which I love Dunkels. It's like mm. a Belgian German kind of style, um, darker beer, but it was, yeah. it had a lightness, but like it was really, really tasty as well. Mm-hmm. So definitely if I can, if I can get down there and get another one, I'm going to go with that one probably next time. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, 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 this beer has been really good. It's been great. And they actually were, they, uh, Main Street Brewer was like, yeah, we'll give you a growler for your next podcast or whatever. Excellent. So it's nice to have the breweries kind of, yeah. you know, kind of coming in and supporting the podcast. And I think, um, you know, as we grow, we can have more of an audience to share these breweries with. And so, yeah, so definitely check out Main Street Brewery and they're super cool guys over there. 
and it's a great location there. Yeah. Like they got food. They got a full like restaurant you know what, in there. And you know what's really neat too is I started a card. I don't know if you started a card on file, but I, yeah, I've got a card. Okay, there. yeah, but basically after you fill in a certain amount up, you get like free T-shirt or you get a free growler. Or, yeah. and a whole and if you keep doing it, you get like cooler and cooler. Yeah, stuff. and they've got some nice merch over there. They too. have great merch. Yeah, yeah, they're like they have a lot of awesome stuff in there. So it's not like there are no slouches on that. So yeah. the fact that they're giving away some stuff after just buying some beer, yeah. I think is a really nice uh, kind of customer appreciation thing. Yeah, I absolutely. like that. Yeah. And it sounds like we're doing an advertisement for them. They do not pay us money. No. They just they just offer us beer yeah. sometimes. <laughs> well, yeah, and uh, you know, for those first time listeners too, it's uh, you know, it was like um, we just started having talks. Uh, artistic talks in these craft breweries. And so when we started the podcast, we're like, why don't we keep the tradition of having a beer on every podcast? And it was really with no intention to promote craft beer necessarily as much as it was just the the tradition of having a beer and having a chat. Yeah. And, um, yeah, but I mean, why not build a community, you know, of, uh, which, uh, craft beer is really big here in Vancouver, BC, Canada, for those of you across the world. Um, so, and yeah, it's a, it's a growing phenomenon. So I think, um, why not? It's kind of neat to include it in the whole yeah. experience. Yeah. Um, did you remember what you were going to say or is it, I, is I it did. Yeah, no, okay. I did kind of remember what I was going to say. And yeah. it was basically, um, see if I can recap this a little bit, Okay. but you know, I think that there are some people who, you know, through the, their experience of life, they acquire certain skills that if they can translate, you know, onto stage or, or in front of a camera, um, that their skills that we don't, most of us, I say, don't really learn, um, because their actual skills about just being like a, a human being, hmm. I think, you know, and it's like, and it's like, how do you kind of teach that? It's, it's kind of beyond a technique. Right. And so I think that a, a huge part of an actor's job is to actually begin to open up some of those things to acquire these skills of, of being hmm. as a person um, that is beyond what most people learn to do or to be comfortable with at the very least, you know, it's like, maybe you, you're aware of it, but to, to really practice it, to be, um, like that, to open yourself up in that way is not something that people are accustomed to doing or prepared to do. And especially not necessarily in a very public setting. Right. Right. And I think that there are some people who have learned how to open up their capacity to do that. And, and it, and then we go, Oh man, they're just, they're naturals. Right. And it's like, well, you know, they're not, they're actually pretty unnatural (laughs) in a lot of ways. Natural is a funny, it's a funny kind of term. I mean, I think the thing is, is like, if we embrace our authentic self, if we are really to be truly ourselves, we'd find that that's actually a really amazing thing. But I think like, you know, we, there's so much pressure when you're young to fit in and conform. And so we kind of miss a lot of opportunities to find out who we really are. And our, our true kind of self-expression is suppressed so much in our early years that we, you know, we think we need to be like certain things. I mean, we're told to be like this actor or this model or this rock star, you know, and we're told that at a very young age. And so whether we know it or not, we begin modeling these ideas, um, even the cool kids in our school, you know? And so we begin doing this stuff. And, and I think there's modeling is a really important element of acting. 
like being able to model is, is important. Like if you can look at someone else and model what they're doing and mimic, mimic, like actually Marlon Brando was a great mimic, Mm -hmm. you know? And like, like he was, uh, apparently just amazing at mimicking all the time. But the thing is, is he wasn't just a mimic. He could be very authentically him. And I think the thing about a good mimic is a mimic is someone who can not only mimic another person and, and, and almost copy them to a T, but they also can see how that person is separate from them is which makes them such a good mimic because, mm-hmm. um, modeling is like, uh, where monkey see monkey do you do it. I do it right. And, and you do it. And I think what you do is good, but I think what I don't do, what I do is not so good. So I'm going to do what you do. And like modeling is where you run into more trouble. Mm. Mimicking in a certain sense has a, it's like farcical. It has like a little bit of a comedic side to it, you know? Yeah. It's like seeing a good, like impressionist. Yeah. An impressionist. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And so like, but modeling is dangerous. And like the thing about modeling is, um, we will model like it's, it's, it's almost unavoidable, but I think part of it is that we need to sometimes question the things we've modeled and like, look well, at that. Sometimes with modeling, it's like, you're trying to, you're taking what somebody else is doing and trying to pass it as your own. Yeah. You know, and then it becomes, and it, it's yeah, become super it's disingenuous. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, and it reeks of it. Totally. Just reeks of it. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, with modeling, I think, um, you, you got to, you can use what someone else did to some degree, but I think you got to build on top of it and find your own thing in it. You said something to me once and I've repeated it many times, but I remember when I was reworking the burning blues draft and, um, you said, take everything that you've written that seems even any form cliche to you and make it your own. And I thought that was such great advice because, you know, those cliches I used were kind of things I had modeled, but then once I made them my own, then they became, it was like, instead of rebuilding the wheel, it was like making the wheel better, you know, and that's yeah. what made it my own, you know, and so, or making it different at least, you know, yeah. in my own way, better, better for me, maybe better for my story. But, yeah. um, but I think like, you know, I was working with, uh, I actually gave another writer that same advice you gave me. And I, I gave him an example. I said like, you know, take something like all's fair in love and war, take that thing. If you wrote that in your script, you could write something like, you know, um, you know, you could, you could just change the words, change the way you're describing it. I don't remember how I put it, but he, after I told that to him, I was like, he was like, yeah, he's like, that's fucking awesome. I'm like, yeah, my buddy Evan shared that with me. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a really good piece of advice because I think we can't help but model. So we need to, like your advice was like really good advice for me because it really showed me, it's like, okay, well, I'm not going to, there's still going to be things I've modeled, but what I can do is identify how I modeled something from someone else. And that's not really me. And then find me in that modeling as opposed to, um, trick myself into believing I am the way that this person is, you know? Yeah. 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 And, and I think part of that, like there's a maturity in that there's, and I think to a degree, you know, sometimes you, you do these things no matter what you're in because you're, you have all these people that you admire and you want to be like them. You know, you want to have the success that they've had or the recognition that they've had. And so, you know, it's, it's, it is, it's kind of natural that that's what you would do, but eventually, I mean, you've got to, you really do have to find who you are. Mm. You really have to find your own voice in no matter what artistic discipline you're in you like, yeah, maybe that's an inspiration 
for you. And that's a starting point. But I mean, those, your inspiration can't do your work for you. And who knows what the world might miss out on if you don't learn to have your own voice, right? Right. You don't, and begin to trust it as well and allow it to have it, have a place. Because again, that's, that's how you end up becoming the next person that somebody wants to become. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Is by having an authentic voice, something that is genuine. And yeah, you know what, maybe it's reminiscent of something, but there's still, it's its own thing. You know, like it's, there's another bonus about being authentic. I'm, there's many bonuses to being authentic, but please. Aside from the fact that you'll be later, potentially what other people model and what other people look up to and, and your own specific caricature in a sense, <laughs> which could be fun. Um, it's way more relaxing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like life becomes a lot easier when you're like true and authentic and genuine to you. I mean, you don't, there's just a lot less to think about, a lot less work, you know? And when you don't worry so much about what people think of you and, you know, when you don't look at things as I would really highly recommend to our listening audience, don't worry about things being good or bad or better or worse, just more truthful or less truthful. And your real goal is to be more truthful. If we lived in a world where, where we actually valued, instead of having this very elementary trait bullshit idea of good or better or worse or whatever. Yeah. And we were just, who's more truthful. If we lived in a world where everyone was just like, who's more truthful, you would watch schools and you would watch people and and society change in such a massive way that we would, we would almost solve like probably 90% of our problems. Most of our problems are because people are full of shit. (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Most people are ego driven in their, in their bullshit idea of who they think they're supposed to be driving their sports cars, walking around like hot shots or whatever. And it's all bullshit. It's all just bullshit. Now I'm not saying don't drive sports cars. I'm not saying don't wear nice suits or dresses or do your hair up. I'm not saying that, but acting like a hot shot's kind of bullshit, <laughs> acting like a hot shot and walking around like you're better. And, and, and any of us as an audience buying into that as though they're better. That's all bullshit. You know, authenticity and truth solves almost 90% of your problems, almost, almost everything. Cause most of our problems are based on bullshit. They're based on yeah. a made up idea of like who we think we're supposed to be, who we think everyone else is supposed to be right and wrong and all that other crap. You cut all that shit out of the equation. And it's just like, this is who I am. And this is really truthful for me. And this is how I truthfully experience the world. And it's unlike anybody else. And now everybody else has their own experience and everybody else's experience is totally okay too. And through all of our authentic, truthful experiences together, we can begin to come to some agreement on things and disagreements on others, but we will actually be real. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, how many people have been in a relationship where you, you know, you find out that really that relationship was just a bunch of bullshit, mostly because people aren't being real. Yeah. Cause people are coming in on the first three weeks, the first date, the first few months, and they're pretending to be someone they're not, you know, but now we live in a society where every kind of, kind of believes they have to kind of pretend and be whatever. And the thing is, it's hard in some ways I get it to be rejected for who you really are, but also there really is no rejection. I mean, like the thing is, is like, um, I think the hard part 
to let go of the image is that we have a world that is really trying to reinforce it. So we get a lot of negative feedback when we, when we actually are authentic at first. Yeah. But once you cut through that immediate like crust of the world and you kind of get down a little bit deeper, you're going to actually find that actually that's what people love about you most. But it's saying it's really hard for people to get through that initial stage to let go of ego and just kind of embrace, you know, who they really are. Yeah. But I think most of our problems would be solved. And also we would be way better actors, way better writers, filmmakers, painters, and everything if we were just authentic. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, I think that that's like, <laughs> seems so obvious. I know, but it's like, that's <laughs> honestly, I think that's like, maybe more than half the battle. Yeah. Like, I say 90%. Really? Yeah. 90%. <laughs> like, I just pulling that number out of the air, but yeah. I really think it's most of the problem. Yeah. If we could just like express with complete and absolute honesty, most of the time, yeah. I mean, man, we could, we could create so much. And I mean, it's like, it's like our guest a little while ago, Shane, um, Shane I'm trying to think of his last name now. Shane Martin. That's it. And like kind of fits into that because he's, he was talking about letting go. If mm. We could just let go a little more. And I think that's part of it. It's like, it's letting go of our ego, letting go of our bullshit, yeah. you know, like, and letting go of all of this stuff that we think we should be, or we need to appear as, you know, if we could let go of that shit, man, like we would be so free. Yeah. So free to create. Yeah. So, well, we've gone on a pretty good little rant. So what do you think about rapping this? Piece yeah, of? let's do it. Let's okay, so do it. Experience was a big word for you. Experience was a big word for me in this one. Um, as far as a, a way of learning. And I think that, you know, a big word for you was process in this one. Uh, and I think that they're, they're related to each other. Um, process is what brings trusting in process allows you to have an experience and it allows you to experience your life. It allows you to experience your art in a way that you, you can't possibly find if you're so focused on a result mm. of trying to just arrive at the end point. Um, but when you're in that process and then you, yeah, you allow yourself to have an experience when you trust your process and that experience is going to give you lessons learned on a profound level that you'll carry with you. Hmm. I mean, and I know this from my own experience of learning about art and creativity and where that kind of space all exists. Um, as I was talking about earlier, like it's that experience can completely change everything for you. Uh, so I think, yeah, let, letting go of this need to have a, a outcome or what, or letting go of what you think makes something great. I think that's another big thing that's sort of been permeating in this conversation. It's like, whatever you think is great, you have no idea. You have no idea what's great. And the only way that you can have that happen is to trust in your process and allow yourself to have an experience Hmm. that you don't even know what it's going to be. Well, that was well put. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'd say, uh, 
you know, I don't really know what we'll ultimately end up titling this episode, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. But um, another word that stood out to me a bit in this was like the authenticity. And like, you know, I think if you're, if you're process is coming through a place of truth from a place of authenticity and genuineness, you're going to find that you'll get much better results, much better growth, and you'll reach more potential because, you know, I remember, um, one of my friends pointing out to me at one point, like most people are walking around and say we were rate, say, say we rated our ability out of 10. Most people are walking around like they're a seven or an eight or a nine. Some people even think they're a 10. They think they're perfect. Um, narcissism, yeah, narcissism <laughs> right? And so if we just were honest and we walked around like we were two or three, we would actually be able to grow because most of our problem is we pretend to be better than we are. Mm. And if we were just more honest and we were like, and not from a place of like a suffery place, like I'm not that good, you know, like not that shit. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being like, Oh, I have a lot of room to grow. And we looked at it that way. We could actually, if we were really honest, we could go, if say we were a two, we could go to an actual three or four or five. But if we pretend we're a seven and we're really a two or three, we have to kind of keep up the act of being a seven. So yeah. we never actually get to go forward from a two or three and actually grow. So we end up kind of just undermining ourselves. So I think you should just throw out the whole scale to begin with. Well, I'm just going to, no, just, I get what you're saying. You're talking about humility. Yeah. I'm talking I think, about humility. Yeah. yeah. And so I think if we had more humility, we would have, uh, we would find that our process was a lot more gentle, um, on us and that we would actually grow more and realize more of our potential. And also we'd allow for a more authentic experience of the moment, because I think a lot of our experiences of the moments are being filtered through who we think we're supposed to be and this idea. And I think that it's not so much, I think it's just a misguidance in our culture. Um, and I know I've experienced it myself and I'm, I, I, am I'm, I'm at least when I've talked with other people, other people seem to experience that as well. And so I would just say like, you know, be authentic in your experience and allow, allow your, your process to come from a place of humility. I mean, that's the best way I could really sum it up. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, it is excellent. Yeah. 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 I'm so good. <laughs> I'm a seven out of a 10. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's all I got. You got anything else? No, no, that was great. All right. Well, it has been another not so serious Sunday. Don't take yourself so seriously, folks. That was our show for today. Thanks a lot for listening and being a part of this. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe and share with your friends and family. Or you can learn more and message us at www.thebndpodcast.com. Oh, and make sure to leave a comment and rate us on iTunes. That will really help us out a lot. It definitely will. Thanks.